to you, Macintosh and Maude. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Tootsie. Michael Dorsey, an unsuccessful actor, disguises himself as a woman in order to get a role on a trashy hospital soap. Yeah, this is a big one. This is a big deal of a movie. Like, it's pretty classic. It's a big deal to a lot of people seems like everybody's in it it's not without controversy sure but i think it holds up relatively well this movie yeah begs the question of can a movie ruin itself in the last five minutes sure sure. because there's so much fascinating and interesting about this movie Mm -hmm. with the big big caveat you know we talked about this with garp Mm-hmm. It's 1982. Yes. The sensitivity at which they are going to talk about certain things is going to be lacking at times. Totally. However, that it's willing to be upfront and frank. Yes. About a lot of the topics that are popping up and it leans into those mm-hmm. in this fascinating way. There's so many different layers of commentary on here, but again, I think it still holds up today. I think the only thing I really don't like about this movie, like I don't like, I don't love the conceit. Like we don't love the conceit. No. But they set it up well. It's the ending is so horrible. Like it's (laughs) it's not even like it's a bad ending. It's just like not an ending. I think what's so frustrating about the ending of this movie is that we spent An hour and a half of the movie really digging into some wildly interesting existential themes, Mm -hmm. which in a remake, because this could be remade, I honestly feel like, but it could dive even deeper. Mm -hmm. And instead of finding a resolution that actually answers some of those questions, it just decides all of a sudden it's going to dismount into a romantic comedy, which... To be fair, it always kind of was. Sure. I have a lot more respect for why it comes out the way it does after seeing all of the mess that this movie went through to get made. Okay. But what I don't think anybody thought about or realized was that you really, really needed to like fully clean all of this up. Yeah. And figure this all out with the character at the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Instead of just suddenly making it a reveal about a man finally forced to confront and be honest about things. And then, are you going to forgive me? Yeah. Which I'm like, no, no one should forgive you for what you've done. More importantly, what should be coming out of you is not, I want forgiveness. It's, my whole life needs to be re-examined now. I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's it needed to be not not even that, but just like what did he learn from the experience? Because that's really valuable. And it's like, okay, so like obviously we're already into the story here, but this is a guy who cannot get a job because he's a pain in the ass. Yeah. He's talented, but he's a pain in the ass. And he finally gets a job. When he pretends to be a woman because he's being dismissed and he's used to being dismissed, but he's being dismissed for entirely different reasons. And that emboldens him to be like, fuck you people. And that's what makes the difference. That's what makes 
them as as Dorothy compelling because it's like, who's this broad? Women don't act like this. This is different. Mr. Carl, I'm an actress. I'm a character actress. I can play this part any way you want. Honey, I'm sure that you're a very, you very good actress. Why don't you give me an idea what you're looking it's just for? just you're a little bit too soft what? and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me, or I'm going to meet your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? To start? Yes, I think I know what y'all really want. You want some gross caricature of a woman. To prove some idiotic point, like like power makes women masculine or masculine women are ugly. Well, shame on the woman that lets you do that, on any woman that lets you do that. And that means you, dear, Miss Marshall, shame on you, you macho shithead. And that's compelling. And at no point do we really see, like, Michael go, what does that say about me as a person? And what does that say about women and their experience in life? Because he does take that to his characters, like, action in their soap opera but he doesn't apply it to his actual life you know when you they get close to it but they don't yeah when you say it like that too you realize that the character of sandy is really holding this whole fucking thing back uh the terry gar character yeah and like now that you say it i'm like oh yeah because you've got this whole farce going on on the side when the real meat of this movie is him, one, going through this and realizing how much he'd been dismissed and then how much harder it is for women, and then that suddenly transforming his thinking about women, and then that really throwing him into this deeper, deeper exploration. That's the movie. Yeah, that's that's really where I'm, I'm fine with the Terry Gar character. I would have preferred it if she was just his girlfriend that he wasn't telling that he was doing this. And then that creates like tension in the relationship. But as he becomes more understanding to him and he becomes like a better boyfriend almost in a way, because he's like, he's just better towards her because he has a better understanding of what she's going through as a person. Like if that had been the way the character was modeled, her placement in the, in the movie would have been better. And then like the closeness with the actress that he's attracted to would also complicate things. Yeah, this movie, this movie's two movies in one, and it didn't ever decide which one it was going to be. Well, and it didn't, it didn't pay off either one very well. No, <laughs> but like I will say, the journey is very enjoyable. It's a swing for the fences, no doubt, and I get why it's remained a classic to this point. Sure, because. When it does land, it lands surprisingly well in a refreshing yes. way on some really difficult themes to try to think through and parse. Sure. It takes the simple idea of drag mm-hmm. and the comedic idea of men in drag mm-hmm. and really says, okay, now let's push that to its absolute dramatic limit and mm-hmm. what that would actually mean for the lives of the characters involved. Sure. And I. I would say that this isn't a movie about a man in drag. It's not. He's not in drag. He is impersonating a woman. Like he doesn't he doesn't want to become a woman. He is not he's never lying to that about the the one person in his well the two people because his agent knows and his roommate knows. Like he's not lying about that. He's just presenting himself as a woman in order to portray this character. Yep. Which is like a whole different level of things. <laughs> like it's this is not a man in drag. Drag is awesome. This is a fascinating ride. 
because it it opens up so many questions and then on occasion makes an effort to try to answer some of them. Yeah. And for a movie from 1982, damn. <laughs> well, and I don't, I, I mean, we, we've only watched the one time. I, I saw it many years ago, but I definitely didn't pay attention to it. And the gender politics at play, I definitely, that are so a part of our conversation now, I definitely was not aware enough to <laughs> to think about or to catch then. So I was definitely more aware now, but of course there's things we missed, but I don't, I feel like they didn't like punch down on gender in this movie. Which is part of why I feel like it holds up. Like there are things that are stereotypical that I don't think are really that different today. So they they hold up. Yeah, it's it's just trying to be open. Yeah. In how it's telling its story and being like, well, let's think about that. What would that mean? And actually having those discussions. You feel like they actually talked that through in the room while they were making it. Yeah, it seems like they, they thought about it. Yep. They just didn't nail the story. It just didn't, they didn't. I mean, it's the ending is the bigger problem of anything. Like, I'm fine with the movie. It's the ending doesn't work. They need to rework the last 20 minutes. But as I start to think about it, I'm like, oh, a lot of farcical shit happened to lead us to that ending. Yeah. And that's OK. Well, but I start to go, that's kind of a problem because it's it's holding back the other better part of this story. I don't know. I don't know. We don't like the ending. That's that's the consensus we have here. We don't like the <laughs> ending. We do like I do like the movie. I don't hate the movie. Well, the budget for this movie was twenty one million dollars. Okay. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of people in this movie. It grossed one hundred and seventy seven million dollars. Oh yeah, this was a hit. After one hundred and eight days in theaters, Tootsie became Columbia's highest grossing film to that point. Wow. Okay. This was a big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. Fun note, it actually got an R rating when it finally got to the MPAA in late 1982. Mm-hmm. Like three days later, they had an immediate appeal and got a PG rating. Because I guarantee you the only reason they put an R on was because he was investing himself into performing a woman. Yep. Yep. That's literally all it was. <sighs> Ratings. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about our writing. And this, this is a saga. Oh, okay. We have eight writers for this film. Many of them uncredited. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I mean, so many writers appeared before the arbitration panel with the Writers Guild for this Mm -hmm. movie that it actually delayed the release of the film. Oh. Oh, okay. There was arbitration at the Writers Guild? Oh, there's a whole development hell saga here. All right. Tell me a tale, David. Let's start with the names, and then we'll go into the legend. Okay. First of all, with a story credit, we have Don McGuire. He is a longtime old school Hollywood guy. Before this, he wrote Bad Day at Blackrock, Johnny Concho, Suppose They Gave a War, and Nobody Came. Larry Gelbart also has a story and a screenplay credit for the movie. He started as a TV comedy writer. Mm -hmm. He also wrote the book for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Oh, okay. He created television's MASH. Oh, okay. And then wrote Movie Movie, Oh God, and Neighbors. After this, he wrote Blame It on Rio, the 2000 remake of Bedazzled, and the television movie and starring Pancho Villa as himself. Hmm, Okay. So he's a big deal. Now, also with screenplay credit, 
is Murray Shiskal. He does not really do film. He was mostly a playwright. Okay. We have then uncredited Barry Levinson. Oh, okay. Our guy from Diner came in to do some rewrites on Okay. We have Robert Garland uncredited. Before this, he wrote The Electric Horseman. And after this, he wrote the movie No Way Out, some other uncredited work. He seems like he might be a script doctor kind of guy. Okay. We have Robert Kaufman, who did a bunch of stuff that I've never heard of, mostly screwball comedies. Okay. We have Elaine May, the incredibly talented comedian, improviser, and partner of Mike Nichols, romantically and professionally. Okay. Before this, she wrote A New Leaf, Such Good Friends, and 1978's Heaven Can Wait. After this, she wrote Ishtar, The Birdcage, and Primary Colors. Oh, man. Yeah. And she she pops up now and then and other things. She's a fucking great comedian. Yeah. She's amazing. And as we shall explain, somebody who definitely gets an uncredited role here is Dustin Hoffman. Oh, okay. Now, a word about Dustin Hoffman. There are some reports of him being involved in some really horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. But for the purposes of this episode, what you really need to know is that he's an incredibly difficult actor to work with. Yes. And I don't mean just in the like method sense, because there are method actors who are still professional about it. Mm-hmm. He's not one of those. No. He's a fucking asshole. We've talked about him before during Kramer versus Kramer and Rain Man. Yes. However... <laughs> He's uniquely involved in this movie. Yes, I, that does not surprise me at all. So <laughs> here's how this story goes. We have to go back to 1975 oh. for when this movie started. Back then, there was a comedy announced called Would I Lie to You, which is our what title could have been better for this movie. Okay. It was announced to begin production with Buddy Hackett in the lead role. Oh, okay. This was by every indication, going to be a complete screwball comedy. It was not going to be what this movie became. Okay. The story was then adapted by Don McGuire, who we talked about, in 1979, based on a play about a female impersonator taking on a TV role as a nurse. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Very close to our story. At that point, director Dick Richards, who we'll talk about in a little bit, and writer Robert Kaufman came on board the project. However, Kaufman left the project when he started battling with the legendary raconteur and producer Robert Evans. Mm. His brother, Charles Evans, was the actual producer of this film, but Robert got his hands on the pie, and so Kaufman was like, I'm out. Mm, okay. Now, while all of this is going on, Dustin Hoffman and his very good friend, Murray Shizgal, a playwright, mm -hmm. started developing a script in 1978 called Shirley about a male tennis player pretending to be female to win matches. Mm -hmm. With the Billie Jean King of it all, it's not a terrible idea for a script, although... Ugh. Wildly insensitive. Wildly insensitive, but I get where they were headed. Now, they wound up abandoning the idea altogether, but Dick Richards who was directing this Would I Lie to You movie, brought the script over to Dustin Hoffman and Columbia Studios. Mm -hmm. Now, Dick Richards was a legendary ad exec director. Oh, okay. 
and Coca-Cola, who was one of his former clients, offered to push money in to help finance. Oh, okay. Production was then scheduled for summer 1980. That's right. This movie was supposed to start in 1980. Okay. It doesn't come out until near the end of 1982. Yep. Woof. Now, as Shizgal started working on the script, because Dustin Hoffman wants him to work on it, it's his really good friend, Richards starts to lose faith in the project. He starts to think that the movie's becoming too sardonic, it's losing all its humor. He's a screwball comedy guy, so I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, maybe I kind of get it. Like, I'm glad that it didn't go that direction, but he decides, I'm out as director, I'm going to jump on as producer instead. Okay, that makes sense. Fair enough. So now they're pushing to fall of 1980, but rewrites dragged on and on and on well into 1981, and it wasn't until June of 81 that they finally found a replacement for Dick Richards, Mm -hmm. Hal Ashby. Oh, we know that name. Take a pause here. Hal Ashby could have done something really cool with this movie. I think he would have fixed our ending problem. Maybe I, again... Shampoo left such a bad taste in my mouth, but that was also the script of that movie. Mm. But like, I do love Hal Ashby, and this is such a perfect story for him to look at, because mm-hmm. he gets that absurdity so well. But nevertheless, we have a really good director we're going to be talking about, so I'm, I'm not too mad. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, they had brought in Larry Gelbart, who was the creator of MASH, and he starts working on the script just to... to get everything restarted. By September, Ashby was ready to start pre-production while completing post-production on his previous project. However, Columbia had a 90-day production period for the movie, now called Tootsie. Mm. And contractually, if he finished post-production on that other movie, he would be breaking his contract. Oh, okay. They threatened to sue. Yeah. So Ashby had to jump out. That sucks, but yeah, contracts. At this point, Columbia's like, get this movie fucking done. Mm-hmm. Columbia was demanding filming start no later than January 1982. Again, we're in the fall of 81 already, but they already had actor commitments. They had weather issues because they were going to be filming in New York. So they start discussions in November 81 with Sydney. Pollock, Mm, who is our director for this movie, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. They confirmed a March 82 start date, but Pollock turned it down several times. Oh, okay. He cited this as a, quote, one-joke movie, unquote. Interesting. The premise alone couldn't sell him. He's just like, it's a man dressed as a woman. What the fuck am I doing here? Honestly, if that's how they're pitching it, I get that. I totally get that. That's not funny. And it shouldn't be funny. It shouldn't be funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, and thinking about just from like a business standpoint, that's your elevator pitch for this movie. Like, that's the way you're just going to do it if you've got two minutes in the room. But that's not this movie. And eventually they got the script to him and he was lured in by the realism of the Mm -hmm. script. He realized we have a chance here to actually explore the changes that are happening with Michael Dorsey. Mm -hmm. You know, he he recognized that potential. Yeah. Wait a minute. There's a whole lot we can dive into here 
with this man realizing how hard it is for women in his industry. Yeah. So he now hates the script. <laughs> yeah. And so first he brings in Barry Levinson and Robert Garland. They do rewrites. He is also rumored to have brought in another writer who isn't named, Levinson's partner, Valerie Curtin, mm. who is an actress and who also co-wrote And Justice for All and Toys. Oh, okay. There's very few contemporary sources showing this, but like there's some rumors about that. But they only wrote for like 10 days and their minor contributions didn't do a lot. So then Pollock tries to rehire Robert Kaufman, the guy who was way back in like 79. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fair. He's like, hey, can you come back in and fix this? Well, Kaufman's price was way too high. No. Oh, yeah. And Pollock was out of money. So Sidney Pollock took scissors and glue and cut and paste a cohesive screenplay from all of the different drafts. Wow. <laughs> he got a 143-page screenplay out of that. He also then brings in Elaine May, who was supposed to bring a, quote, woman's touch to the film. Of course. However, May was probably the final piece of the writing puzzle. She solved a ton of script problems while filming. Mm-hmm. And she created the character of Jeff Slater. Okay, cool. So, <laughs> we have gone from screwball comedy on one side, Hoffman and Shiskal thinking about this idea. We've gotten all the way to fucking Sidney Pollock cutting and pasting a script. Mm -hmm. Shiskal stayed on the project during filming without pay to do modifications. And by the end of this, the Writers Guild has to sift through all of the different bullshit to figure out who the fuck's going to get credited. That's insane, but also <laughs> fair. <sighs> it's, it's fucking wild. That's my thing is like thinking about it now. I'm like, well, damn, it's pretty impressive that we got anything cohesive out of this movie. <laughs> yes. This thing is a script by committee of the highest level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and somehow they pulled it together. I, I think my thing is like, I can see now why the ending lands the way it does because they've threaded these two different scripts through the whole time. Yeah. What makes it work is the fact that Sidney Pollock is such a good director mm -hmm. and such a good eye in the editing room that he managed to make it seamless right up until the very end. <laughs> Like, it's like he, he just somehow super glued all of it together, and then he just couldn't tie the end together anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, the whole thing just finally went, and we're done, and I'm dead. Wow. It's, it's two movies cut and paste together. <laughs> what, a, what a story. My God. Wow, that's, yeah, that's a, quite a roller coaster. I should say a lot of this is on the um, AFI has a catalog of, like, movies from 1893 to 1992 or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's got a great resource, and all of this pops up from their database. That's cool. They do a ton of research on the trade papers, and so they pull all this information in, which is just like, well, fucking bonkers. <sighs> Some other fun notes about this story. Larry Gelbart stated that he had held a long-time grudge against Dustin Hoffman after this because Hoffman claimed that Shizgal, his friend, had actually conceived the movie. Now, if you talk to most everybody else... They all pretty much say that Dustin created Dorothy. Mm -hmm. Dustin is primarily responsible for Dorothy's character. Like, okay. 
the script is getting developed and the story goes along, but he came up with all of that. Okay. And we'll talk about that with his acting. So Gelbart's got some sour grapes here. Mm. However, he continued to claim it as his own story and movie, quote, despite Dustin Hoffman's lifelong mission to deprive anybody of any credit connected with that movie, except for his close friend. Hmm. He also stated that until they started collecting awards for the writing of the movie, he had never even met some of the writers working on the film. Wow. I, I think we've made it pretty clear how we feel about the actual writing of the movie. Yeah. But I, I do, that at least gives me the understanding of like, oh, that's why it just belly flopped on its face. Because mm. yeah. they barely figured out how to put it together. <laughs> yeah. And I think it speaks even more to the outstanding nature of our director of this film. And that is Sidney Pollack. Hey, we talked about him as an actor. Yeah. In our episode about Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. But honestly, his acting, while awesome, and he's super fun in this movie, and we'll talk about that later, mm -hmm. he's an even better director. So before this, he directed all the television you could ever want to watch in your life. This property is condemned. They shoot horses, don't they? Jeremiah Johnson, The Way We Were, The Yakuza, Three Days of the Condor, Bobby Deerfield, The Electric Horseman, and Absence of Malice. After this, he directed Out of Africa, Havana, The Firm, Sabrina from 1995, and The Interpreter. What do we think of Sidney Pollack's direction of this movie? I think it's really good. I think that's what's holding this movie together. I mean, again, I, it could have easily become a movie about a man in drag, and it doesn't. It's so earnest, and it feels very honest. And I think that really comes from the direction, because we know it's not the script, totally. No, it's very much not the script. No, and it, it just really feels like he understood he has to make take this very seriously. Otherwise, it becomes a joke and it becomes a flat joke uh, very quickly. And you come to the movie knowing what's about to happen. You know, and yet the buildup to it is so well done. I mean, I wasn't ready for the smash cut. Yeah. I was not prepared at all. Mm -hmm. And then I saw it and like something registered of like, okay, I've seen that parodied a bunch of times. Like I've sure. seen that shot, but like, you're not ready for, I, I kept thinking, oh, well, we're going to see him like plot it out. And I was like, no, it's just all of a sudden here's Dorothy. Yeah. And you're like, shit. <laughs> Whoa. Sidney Pollack insisted that the actors approach the roles as dramatic performances in a comedic situation. There you go. Yeah. Quote, no one ever laughed during the shooting of any scenes of the film. It's only funny because of its story structure, unquote. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he's absolutely right. Yep. Like, you know, he would let people improv for the jokes. He, you know, would find the moments to make it funny mm -hmm. because there's so much funny, weird farce that's going on alongside yes, of all of it's, this. It's a ridiculous situation. But he recognizes that the only way that this movie is going to work, and it's going to work in a way where it's really going to grab audiences, is if they're forced to reckon with the very serious stakes behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, the serious emotional stakes, too. Yeah. The, the whole thing about Michael falling in love with this woman on this soap set, you know, it's such a like comedy of errors thing that is transformed into this very real, deep thought of like, what's going to happen when I have to be honest with this person? Mm -hmm. 
when I have truly made a connection based on something far deeper than I've ever known before. Sure. And like all of all of what Pollock captures of him getting that drink thrown in his face and how deeply that hits him. Yeah. Man, that's all in in what he figured out how to put on camera. He's undoubtedly the number one reason this movie works. Yeah. Because it it would just fall apart if you don't have somebody this thoughtful and smart approaching this movie. It's why I even think somebody like Hal Ashby, who I have a lot of regard for as a director, Mm -hmm. still wouldn't have figured this out because I think you still would have treated it a lot like a comedy. Yeah, I think so. And Sidney, and you know, I think this is this is indicative because he's got so many different kinds of movies he's done over his career. His whole thing is, what's the best way to tell this story? Mm-hmm. He's an incredibly practical director. Yeah. And so he's just like, whatever the best way to do this is, we're going to do it that way. So yeah, he he's fantastic. And, it, and that's what's really fun to watch. I, mm-hmm. Again, that's what makes... So much of this movie feels so fresh and hold up well is because everybody takes it seriously. <laughs> Jessica Lang had high praise for his work on the movie. Quote, he has almost impeccable taste about what's right and what he needs and doesn't need. I really think he did something with my performance in the editing room, made it more interesting, unquote. Hmm. Of course, he and our star fought incessantly and intensely over very little things. Of course they did. At one point, Dustin Hoffman argued for total control of the film and demanded final cut. Yeah, that sounds like something Dustin would do. (laughs) As a compromise, Pollock let him in the editing room, Mm. but he ultimately got final say. According to most sources, Dustin said, and I I didn't see counterpoints, but it seems like they both had this. It was like, yes, they fought a whole lot. But it was usually over story quibbles like it, you know, he he was arguing for final cut because he's an asshole. Yeah. But more often than not, it was stuff about what's going to make this movie good. And it Mm -hmm. was and they were both intensely serious about the story and the character. Sure. So it it seemed to be in support of the production. But still, (laughs) it's it's not a fun way to work together. Yeah. Eventually, as part of this fighting, Dustin finally suggested that Sidney play the role of his agent. Oh, okay. That's how this came about. Pollock wanted Dabney Coleman to play that role. Oh, okay. And Hoffman, when, when he said that, was like, okay, what's my motivation with this character? Pollock told him, well, the motivation is if you can't figure some, some way to do work, you're never going to work again because your agent's about to throw you under the bus. And Hoffman insisted that Dabney Coleman, a fellow actor, was not going to get him to that level of intensity. The mm. director would bring him to that level of intensity. I, I mean, it's called acting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, this is the man who Laurence Olivier told, why don't you just try acting, my boy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pollock turned it down several times. Until every day, Dustin Hoffman sent him roses with the note, please be my agent, love, Dorothy. Well, that's funny. (laughs) And then it got even worse. Eventually, Dustin Hoffman threatened to quit the film. Of course he did. And Hoffman's agent had to actually intervene. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Sidney was just like, he's just pulling bullshit. And then Dustin's agent came in and was like, 
no, he's actually dead fucking serious. You have to take this role because he's going to quit the movie. <laughs> yeah. And we cannot let that happen. Yeah. Uh, so finally, finally, he decided, oh my God, I'll do the fucking thing. <laughs> Apparently, they used it as a, as a chance to vent some of their frustration with each other. Mm-hmm. Those scenes. Uh, fair. And they refused to ever work together again. Okay. In fact, Hoffman tried to quash the beef so Sidney could direct Rain Man. Oh, okay. But eventually they decided that was just not for the best. And thus, Barry Levinson got brought in. So, hey. All right. You know, it worked out. It was a good movie. Weird stuff. My God. <sighs> this man. This man had to deal with so much bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he still made a great fucking movie. All right, well, let's talk about that asshole. It's time. It's time to start with our cast and talk about Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. playing Michael Dorsey and Dorothy Michaels. Before this, he did a lot of television and stage, then The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Little Big Man, Straw Dogs, Papillon, Lenny, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, and Kramer vs. Kramer. After this, Death of a Salesman, Ishtar, Rain Man, Dick Tracy, Hook, Hero, Outbreak, Sleepers, Wag the Dog, Sphere, Runaway Jury, Finding Neverland, I Heart Huckabees, Meet the Fockers, Perfume, Story of a Murderer, Stranger Than Fiction, Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, Kung Fu Panda, The Tale of Despero, Little Fockers, Kung Fu Panda 2, Luck, Chef, The Cobbler, The Program, and Kung Fu Panda 3. I totally forgot he was in Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, yeah. I fucking love that movie. Master Shifu. Uh, yeah, exactly. I completely forgot that's him. He plays a rat, which is funny because he is a rat. Anyway, setting aside what a dick he is. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about Dustin Hoffman in this movie? He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. One of the things that we briefly talked about after we watched this is like, wow, you know, we've watched a lot of movies about people who are just difficult, you know, with all the stars born um, with the, my favorite year, just like people who are just so difficult, but there's something about them that makes it worth it. And here we have a movie where that's not only the case about the actual character in the movie, but the actor portraying that person as well. Yeah. Because we know that he takes method too far. We know he's a very difficult man, but there's something about him that, many people believe is worth it it's because he's that good an actor yeah it's interesting yeah the the results come through the screen (laughs) uh, they do he's he's fabulous you totally believe him when he's a struggling actor i love the beginning sequence you know like the little montage of him like auditioning and then performing and then like being the scene partner and then teaching people and just being that guy like he's just so passionate about acting and he is great and like you know we've known people like that and it's just like yeah but you're also this difficult as just a person Mm -hmm. yeah he's playing such a thinly veiled version of himself Mm -hmm. which is fair because he you know, by all rights, kind of co-wrote this movie and created this character from scratch. This is the ultimate version of his method. Mm-hmm. It really is. Like, when we get to all the trivia about him, because there's so much, mm. like, he's barely acting in this movie. Mm. The one thing about it is that he really is one of the most charming scumbags in film history. Okay. Because he's a total dirtbag. But he's so charming. Yeah. That's his whole MO. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, The Graduate, he's a schlub, but he's charming. Midnight Cowboy, he is a total gross, disgusting human who is charming as fuck. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just what he does. Kramer versus Kramer, by all rights, is like, man, you are fucked up, but you're charming and you're trying to do right by your kid. That one doesn't feel the same way. It's like, you're kind of a shitty husband, but you do step up. Yeah. Like, he becomes a better person. And, you know, the the fault is that he will dive way too deeply into a character sure. when there's no reason to do so. Sure. But for this movie, that's the whole point. This is the one role where doing that serves the purpose. Yeah, that is the character. And and also, if you're going to go along with what Sydney's vision is here, mm-hmm. where it's, we're going to take this much deeper... Yeah. At some point, Dustin latched onto that and went, oh, yeah, absolutely. Because the preparation I would kind of do for this character would already lead me that direction. Sure. Now, all of a sudden, it really boosts the way Mm -hmm. the movie works. Yeah. Where Dorothy is no longer just this sort of bumbling farcical character. It's like, no, Dorothy's a fully possessed human woman with all sorts of life goals and things Mm. and he's he's really digging into that it's it's one of the few times where you can go actually it makes a whole lot of sense to do the role the way you normally do yeah all things aside i i get it i get why he's so lauded for this movie yeah there is so much nuance and so much thoughtfulness in it and the reason the movie may not hold up in moments is because of the way it ends. That's it. Yeah. Well, despite the project being created with him in mind, he refused to take the role on unless he felt he could pass as a woman in a screen test. Okay. He did not want Dorothy to be a drag act. He wanted her to be a fully convincing woman on screen. I like that. In fact, he got so wrapped up in the character that during the screen test, they asked Dorothy if she would ever have children. And Dustin Hoffman broke down crying in character, responding, I think it's a little late in the day for that. Mm. He would later recall, quote, I felt so terrible. I would never have that experience. Nothing like that ever happened to me. I've been acting for nearly 30 years, and I've never had a moment like that before in my life, unquote. Hmm. Interesting. So, again, there's no reason to go this deep when you're acting, like, ever. Even for a role like this, I understand it. However, it's very interesting what perspective he comes out of this movie with. Hmm. He also reportedly based Dorothy on his mother, who passed away from a stroke during production of the film. Which, again, don't build a character on something so close and so raw, man. That's rough on your brain. And your heart, man. (sighs) The role required extensive makeup preparations, of Mm -hmm. course. He would spend two hours a day shaving his legs, arms, and the backs of his fingers while sitting in a sauna. Mm. They also taped his skin to tighten his features and installed false teeth to make his mouth look more feminine. Okay. However, his makeup could not conceal his five o'clock shadow. They could only film for about three to four hours at a time before he would have to go shave again. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty common. Originally, the character was not written with a Southern accent, but Dustin Hoffman developed the accent when realizing that it allowed him to fall within a typical female vocal pitch. Okay. He actually worked with former co-star Meryl Streep. Mm. 
um, by reading takes of Blanche Dubois from Streetcar Named Desire and then hearing her feedback to build out the accent. He also worked with Andy Warhol star and transgender legend Holly Woodlawn to coach on the emotional transformation into Dorothy. Oh, okay. And he researched General Hospital and shadowed the production of that soap for three months so that he would understand the mechanics of soap operas. Okay. Some of like that work makes total sense. All of that makes sense. It's the emotional stuff that he put himself through for the character. Mm-hmm. That's really where you go. Oof. And this is this is like that thing that Brian Cox talked about with Jeremy Strong. Mm-hmm. It was blown far out of proportion for a lot of people. But his whole thing was like, you're really emotionally damaging yourself and tapping mm-hmm. into stuff that from my perspective as an actor who's done this for 40 years is yeah. really harmful. Mm-hmm. He's like, I would never say that Jeremy's like an unprofessional actor. He's just like, I don't think you need to dig that deep. But that's me. Yeah. And that's really what it boils down to. It was like, you can go there if you want to, but understand that there's a real risk of that being way too far. Hoffman also liked to uh, do a little prank or two to see if his character preparation was working. At one point, he tried passing himself as his daughter's Aunt Dorothy at parents' evening at school, and Mm. the teachers never knew it was Dustin Hoffman. That's cool. Also, the Russian tea room scene may have been inspired on a prank on movie star John Voight. Dustin reportedly went to the Russian tea room as Dorothy to try out the character, and he ran into John Voight, who bought Hoffman's cover story that Dorothy was a female fan of the actor. John Voight had zero ideas, reportedly, and he was speaking to actor Dustin Hoffman. That's so funny. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that you would mess with your friends. (laughs) During the moment that Dorothy tells April, Gina Davis's character, that she thinks of all the younger actresses as her daughters, this actually wound up being fairly true on this film. Hmm. Gina Davis recalled that because it was her first ever movie, she was very inexperienced. This is her debut film feature. Oh, wow. Okay. She actually showed up early on to the set on days when she wasn't called for a scene. Mm, Yeah. She didn't know that she wasn't supposed, she didn't have to. Hoffman actually acted as a mentor to her. Mm. And by all accounts, and again, this is not the case throughout his career. I'll be very clear on this. But by all accounts, something in the way that the preparation for this film led him to be very kind and have a really good working relationship with two of the major actresses. Both Gina Davis and Jessica Lange have very good things to say about him from this movie. Okay, that's nice. It's it's interesting, and I think that speaks more to he tapped into something different in this character mm-hmm. that made him more sensitive. Well, and his character had a good relationship with those characters, so that make, his methodiness, that makes sense. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman did give Gina Davis one very strong piece of advice. Quote, I know you're going to move to Hollywood and be successful, and your co-stars are going to hit on you, and you should not sleep with your co-stars. It's a bad idea. So here's what to say. When they hit on you, say, I would love to be very flattering, but I'm afraid it would ruin the on-screen sexual tension between us, unquote. That's, I mean, that's solid advice. <laughs> I, I don't think that's terrible. Like, that's solid advice. Like, I think it's a little insulting to assume that she shouldn't sleep with somebody because what if she really fucking wants to? 
I understand. But I appreciate it's like, look, this is definitely going to happen to you. So if you need to get out of it, this is what you say. It's such a really it sneaky, is. flattering way to get around that bullshit. Absolutely. It's, it is a very polite no thank you. Gina Davis stated that later she had to use that line on Jack Nicholson. <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> and Nicholson responded, quote, oh, my God, where'd you get that? What a line. Oh, man. Unquote. That's amazing. That's that's pretty good. That's great. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Uh, very, very fantastic. I love that. Dustin Hoffman, for his part, was relatively transformed by the filming of the role. Mm-hmm. He claimed after the first day of filming as Dorothy, he went home, burst into tears, and confessed to his wife that for the first time, he had to confront his own sexism in all of the ways he never realized. Well, that's good. I mean, again, fucking drama queen behavior because he is that person. But. Yes, but, you know, I'm glad he realized, oh, fuck. He also stated that at the time he realized that he could be made up to be a credible woman, but not a, quote, beautiful woman. And also realized that he probably never would have spoken to Dorothy because he wouldn't have found her attractive. Mm. And he concluded after all of this stuff that this wasn't a comedy. Hmm. Which he's right. I mean, that's pretty insightful. And, you know, that that's something that he learned about himself. I wish that aspect of it had been in the movie. Like I said, I wish I wish we could have had Michael go, you know, I wouldn't give Dorothy the time of day either. That's how I would have done things. Yep. Like that, that would have been such an interesting thing. And if that had been part of the impetus to reveal that he had been, that Michael was pretending to be Dorothy to kind of confront some of these things to people that that would have been a really interesting way to send that part off. It would have, it would have been great for the movie to do it. And also it would have mm-hmm. been good for Dustin to actually hang on to that advice instead yeah. of continuing to be the jerk that he's been. Yeah. Let's go with some who could have been betters. Oh, okay. There's several names. Interesting. The original 1979 screwball version of this, Mm -hmm. George Hamilton. No. (laughs) Mr. Spray Tan himself. Yeah. All right, let's talk about some more serious who could have been betters now. (laughs) Michael Caine. I don't know. Too charming almost? Michael Caine doesn't do awkward very well. You know, his character probably would have come off a little bit to Mrs. Doubtfire for this role. Yeah. But I think it would have still been had that sweetness. Uh, Yeah, it just it doesn't quite work for the sort of New Yorkiness of this. Yeah. Not in the way they're making this movie. How about another legendary asshole, Peter Sellers? Fuck off. No, I know. No, 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 thank you, Peter Sellers. Dudley Moore. Oh, yeah. Dudley Moore could definitely do this. Fascinating. Fun little twist on it, too. Yeah. He would have brought a mischief to it that I don't think Dustin Hoffman has. No, it would definitely still be more, that would definitely lean more comedy than drama. But I think if he had the director with the vision like Sidney Pollock, it would still come off good. Yep. Robin Williams. Oh. Not in 1982. He was no. not there yet. I mean, he did it later with Doubtfire. So no, and that's its own whole discussion too. But uh, yeah, but no, he's he's not there. Not with this kind of story. 
Yeah, that, that that's not right for this story. And again, he ended up doing it without fire, and that story wasn't great either. So, Chevy Chase. No. <laughs> no. In what world would that work? It. That's a movie about a man in drag. Yup. And Elliot Gould. Oh, Elliot Gould. Hmm. He's a little smooth. He is a little smooth, but what would his his lady be? Hmm. So that's that's where you know what if if Sandy's completely out of the movie, mm-hmm. Elliot Gould makes a shit ton of sense. Uh, yeah, okay. And like for me, I think you could get rid of Sandy and make this movie like fully streamlined. Mm-hmm. But the way it's constructed now, with all of the five back and forth and you need some serious investment i don't think elliot gould's quite right Hmm. um if it's a more streamlined story he's very good he's so good at acting yeah for for all of my hate for him i I think dustin hoffman's the right person to do this movie yeah yeah he, he did a good job well let's talk about his big main counterpart that's jessica lang as julie before this jessica lang started her film career in 1976 remake of King Kong. And then all that jazz and the postman always rings twice from 1981. Hmm. After this, she was in Francis, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Sweet Dreams, Crimes of the Heart, Far North, Music Box, 1991's Cape Fear, Rob Roy, A Streetcar Named Desire, A Thousand Acres, Titus, Prozac Nation, Big Fish, Broken Flowers, Grey Gardens from 2009 on TV, mm-hmm. The Vow, The Gambler, Feud, Betty and Joan, American Horror Story, and The Politician. Coming soon, she's going to be in Marlowe, a new take on the Philip Marlowe detective stories with Liam Neeson, mm. Megalopolis, Francis Ford Coppola's new coming film, mm-hmm. and an untitled Netflix movie about Marlena Dietrich. Oh, she's great casting for that. Jessica Lang. <sighs> I like Jessica Lang. I do. Yes. I do like Jessica Lang. I don't like her in this movie. Ooh. Ooh, you don't like her in this movie. I don't. I don't think she's very compelling. Do you think it's her? Do you think that the writing is so wasted on her? The writing is definitely a part of it. But I think her, I don't know. There's something going on that makes her not, like, she never pulls focus. I never want to look at what she's doing. And some of that is definitely the writing. But some of that is her. In this movie, because there's been times where Jess- Jessica Lang like brings down the house, like I, she's she's a fabulous actress, but not in this movie. I almost wonder if this is the wrong kind of movie for her. Maybe uh, this is also going to sound horrible too, but I feel like this person needs to be like drop dead gorgeous. Jessica Lang's a beautiful woman; she really truly is. But like this lady needs to be almost supermodel hot. I well soap opera hot, right? Yeah, like well, very like the whole point is that. She's too good to be on a soap opera. So yeah. part of that part of that is she needs to be that like she you need to believe that she could easily be a movie star tomorrow if she got her break. Well, and I don't I don't really get that from her. See, I I do. The flip side is I think that that's 2022 eyes possibly. And I think in 1982 Jessica Lang is the next big thing. I don't know. I don't she doesn't come off as like Oh, maybe maybe I'm I don't know <laughs> yeah but I I just I'm not compelled by her in this movie 
for sure. It doesn't read as that now. You're absolutely sure. right. I'm just, I do think at yeah, that but, time. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. What's interesting is that she was very reluctant to do the movie. Mm-hmm. She had just finished filming Francis. Oh, okay. So Francis didn't come out until after this, mm-hmm. but she had filmed it and it was an incredibly intense emotional movie. Okay. Like that forced her to like dig super deep. And she's like a fully like trained trained actress. She worked within like the real method acting school type acting stuff. Mhm. So in that movie, you know, she had to go so deep and so far emotionally and during filming of this, she got way too invested in scenes. In fact, in one scene where she had to get angry, she, quote, came out of her dressing room and tore the set apart. After the take, there was this incredible stillness, unquote. Mm-hmm. So she was like, I didn't know if I wanted to play some frothy, ditzy character after I'd just done Francis. Obviously, I'm thrilled that I did, unquote. Okay. I think she's in between a rock and a hard place, like, emotionally at this point. Sure. It was probably not the right time to do this movie. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Like, to me, there's a level of this story does not require the amount of depth and level of acting you're typically wanting to provide in a movie. Yeah. Like, you want to go deep on a character. And that's awesome. But that's not this movie. Julie doesn't need to be super deep. Not that Julie's like a boring character. Julie's fascinating. All the single mom stuff that's like, oh, wow, that's not expected. Mm-hmm. Did you want a drink? I'm not the one breaking up with Robin. Oh, I'd buy a ticket to that. You have influenced me, though, Dorothy. I've been seeing Ron through your eyes lately. Julie, I don't want that responsibility. Why not? Why shouldn't you influence me? Listen, you wouldn't compromise your feelings like I have. You wouldn't live this kind of lie, would you? Well, no, I wouldn't, but... I, no, of I, course I, not, and you're right. It's just... But, I deserve something better, you know? I don't have to settle for this. I really don't. It's just that I've always been too lazy or too scared or... No, why too some? Don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, what the hell? I'll live, won't I? Maybe not happily, but honestly. But she's just a very plain, real character, and Jessica Lange's not that kind of actress. Yeah. So, I don't know. I I think there might be a bit of that. But it it, it is fascinating, and, and she's fine. I just... You're right, there could have been better people. And let's talk about that, because there's a okay. couple of who could have been betters. Oh, okay. Cher. Oh. Now, we do love Cher. We do love Cher, but no, she's not right for this role. No? Okay. I think she she would have pulled focus in a bad way. Mm, interesting. Because she's Cher. Yeah. And we fucking love her in Moonstruck. She brings it down, but she's not Cher in that. I mean, she is, but she's... Share as a person, a different character, and I don't see her doing that here. Share was fully capable of like super acting, finding that role in that niche. Sure. But just by being Share, she's going to pull the wrong kind of focus here. Yeah. How about Terry Gar? She she would have been interesting. She wanted this role. Oh yeah, well, I get it. Yeah, I would want this role too. This is the lead lady. Yeah, that's not Dorothy. <laughs> I mean, I'll give her this. She would have been more down to earth and interesting. Yeah. But I also agree with you that like you need a movie star. And at this point, Jessica Lange was a movie star. But if you're going to replace Jessica Lange, it's got to be somebody 
who is a bona fide movie star in 1982. Yeah, it helps. It helps. If you do it right, it's a stunt cast that pays off. Sure. Well, any of the hospital, the people working in the hospital could have been stunt cast. Yeah. Like Cher could have been, actually Cher would have been great as the, the Sandy role. I mean, fair. That would have been a fun place for her. But like, it has to be the right person. It can't just sure. be throw any any famous actress at that point. Totally. But the right kind of person with a huge name and presence mm-hmm. would make Judy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I, I think Jessica Lange just wasn't in the right headspace to do the movie at that point. Sure. Well, let's talk about Terry Garr as Sandy. Terry Garr... An amazing comedian and performer. Mm -hmm. She did tons of work as a dancer before film, which Mm -hmm. is amazing. But before this, she was in The Conversation, Young Frankenstein, Wontauntaun, The Dog Who Saved Hollywood, Oh God, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which she's also amazing in, Mm -hmm. The Black Stallion, One from the Heart, and Honky Tonk Freeway. After this, The Sting 2, The Black Stallion Returns, Mr. Mom, After Hours, Out Cold, Let It Ride, The Player, Mom and Dad Save the World, Dumb and Dumber, Ready to Wear, Michael, A Simple Wish, Friends, as Phoebe Abbott Sr., Dick, Batman Beyond, Ghost World, Unaccompanied Minors, and Kablooey. What do we think of Terry Garr in this movie? I love her. I'm always happy when she shows up. She's so fun and neurotic. She's Phoebe's mom. Her birth mom. She's pulling such Phoebe energy in this movie. She is Phoebe (laughs) Phoebe Sr., I mean, yeah, that's that's who she like. That is always the vibe I get from her. Like when I've watched interviews with her, I love Terry Gar. She's phenomenal. And I always think she was on SNL. No, I mean, she she was she was adjacent to a lot of those people. Yeah, because she she worked with a lot of those. Sure. People. And she was like definitely uh, I don't know if a host, but definitely a guest performer on there. A sure. ton. But yeah, she was never actually officially a part of the cast. Yeah, I just I love her. She's so good. And she is really good in this. I just, I I preferred her when she was the friend who's so neurotic about the acting, who needs her friend to like, come piss me off, get me mad. And just being neurotic as opposed to like the, the jealous new girlfriend. Like I wish it would have been like, he stood her up for acting lessons and like, they're just really great friends. And then, I mean, like either she has to be fully his girlfriend before this all starts or she can only be his friend. I hate, I hate that she gets turned into that because I would have loved if she got obsessed with this, with Dorothy, like mm-hmm. Dorothy is amazing. Like she's just doing all these things that you talk about all the time, Michael, but she's doing it. This is amazing. <laughs> like that would have been a perfect scene yeah. with her. And she could have done that so well. She does neurotic so well. And, and, and her in a position as the, just a really good friend, like this is my best female friend or the, like, this is my girlfriend. who has been my girlfriend for a long time. And she really has my back. Either of those tones would have worked so well for a scene like that. And then her character isn't just jealous lady I'm sleeping with, jealous girlfriend. Yeah, it's it's one of those things like it's it's sin by omission from the mm-hmm. writers where it's it's not that they wrote it specifically to make it that bad trope. It's that yeah. they f- they didn't round the story out to get rid of that trope. Yeah. And so it sneaks its way in. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she does the amazing thing of just like, it doesn't matter how much that storyline isn't serving the movie. She still brings 100% to it. Yeah. 
And you can't take your eyes off her when she's in the scene. <laughs> she's so fucking funny. She's she's so great. And see, like, that's the other thing. If they got rid of the Sandy role altogether and she was the soap lady, she could have done it. Yeah. Yeah. They, just, they need to, like, make her up just a little bit more so that she's, like, on her in her everyday life. She's just really, she's more of a glamorous lady. Because Terry Gard's gorgeous. Hey, who doesn't want to go for a role in the hay with Terry Gard? Absolutely. No, it's she's the best. Elaine May insisted Terry Gar be cast in the film because she specifically wrote the character of Sandy for Terry Gar. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's definitely not a consolation. It's like I you get to play the character that was specifically written for you. So like mm-hmm. that's a huge compliment. Oh yeah. Gar had her own recollections of working with our man Dustin Hoffman. Of course she did. Quote. If you argue with him on something, he wants his way. Finally, if you say, all right, we'll do it your way, he'll say, no, I don't want you to do it my way until you like doing it my way. It's not enough to give in to him. You have to like what he wants, too, unquote. That would be really frustrating. (laughs) That, like, I get, like, fighting and wanting what you want. But if I am willing to relent and give you what you want, shut the fuck up. Terry and and that's the crazy thing with somebody like Terry Gar mm-hmm. is like Terry Gar was never a movie star like Dustin Hoffman. Terry yeah. Gar was never going to have that same clout. Terry Gar may have been just as, if not more, talented and skilled than Dustin Hoffman. Sure, because of all of the fucking comedy she did. Sure, before she ever got on screen. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, man, what an asshole. <laughs> Let's talk about one final main actor who makes such a great impact in such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Bill Murray playing Jeff. Mm -hmm. He is Bill fucking Murray. He is. And he is Bill fucking Murraying it up in this movie. Oh, Bill Murray from the 80s. (laughs) That's who he is. Uh, Which, like, granted hasn't changed, but this is like as his powers were truly coming being seen (laughs) but it works so fucking well he's great and i i genuinely believe you need to have his character because he is such a surrogate for the audience i mean michael has to tell someone somebody in his life has to know other than his agent because his agent thinks this is crazy but oh we get money cool so then he's in and jeff has to at least be like did you realize how this is impacting you as a person, right? Like, And, like, he asks, like, a fair question, like, are you doing this because you want to wear a dress? Like, is that what's going on here, buddy? Like, those are fair questions. And he's coming from a place of, like, you're my friend. I don't care. I just want to know, like, what's going on with you. But also I'm Bill Murray. <laughs> There's that, too. But, like, <laughs> he, but he acts as that surrogate. He really does. And you need that in a film like this. In order for it to be taken seriously, you need that. You need to ask those questions. Otherwise, it's just him doing this and just just getting away with it. Because he does get away with it. But it's also hard. Well, I think what's so great, too, is like Jeff's character is in so many ways a huge plot impetus for the movie. Sure. Oh, absolutely. It's his play that they're making the money for. Exactly. So like. You know, even if he wasn't going to be on screen very much mm-hmm. and you weren't going to have somebody of Bill Murray's ca- caliber in there, Jeff's got to be something. Sure. What's so great is that they decided, well, why don't we also make him a character? Yeah. An actual person in this in this world. Mm-hmm. 
And then they let him have the very much that audience commentary of like, do you know how ridiculous you sound right now? Mm-hmm. Like, again, Jeff doesn't care if he's like actually intrigued by becoming a woman or, you know, deciding, well, maybe this is the way I want to do things. But he's also like, you realize how much you're ruining your life right now for what seems like no good reason mm-hmm. when you could just figure something else out. And then, of course, right at the end, he gets the fucking line of the movie. Which is? That is one nutty hospital. Yep. <laughs> In the deadpan of deadpanest voices. Oh, sure. It's still not as good as his whole monologue talking about theater and his play, which I'm sure I've done so many times. Yes. Me cringing at the same time as giggling uncontrollably because yep. it's Bill Murray doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's so fucking good. Well, he was cast on the behest of Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was like, I think I want Bill Murray as my friend. And mm-hmm. Sidney Pollack was not into it. He didn't think it was a good idea, but honestly, it's one of the best things about the movie. And he's such a great mirror. Like, well, not mirror, but like, he's just a great friend next to Justin Hoffman. Oh, like, because like Michael is such is so wound tight and like he's super passionate. So you get it. But his friend Jeff is also very passionate, but he's very relaxed. And that makes complete sense that they would be friends. Mm-hmm. complete and then also you have like the big height difference between the two which also just looks good and like he's perfect he's just so right and then him and terry gar together is just like i want to tell the kiss because <laughs> i love you <laughs> i love you too you're both adorable just smooch smooch <laughs> uh most of his dialogue was improvised of course it was of course but the funny thing is he is not credited in this movie really well, he is not in the opening credits. He apparently agreed to omit his name. Mm-hmm. At one point, reports said he said it as a joke. But the main reason that they, t- that they decided to not credit him in the opening was so audiences wouldn't get wind of it as publicity and think this was another Meatballs, Caddyshack, or Stripes. Okay, that's fair and smart. They didn't want Bill Murray to be in it, and everybody think, oh, we're getting another dumb, stupid comedy. It's a Bill Murray movie. It's like, that's not what this is. Yeah. No, no, that's fair. Like, that's not an insult to those movies. It's just like, that's fair. That sounds like a pretty reasonable thing, and Bill's the kind of guy who will do that from time to time, when it when it makes sense for the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's it for our main cast, but wow, do we have a lot of harpons. Yes, we do. And I mean, a lot of harpons. First of all, we have Dabney Coleman playing Ron. We talked about him for nine to five. Mm-hmm. He's a very good, very great actor. How about Charles Durning playing Les? Mm-hmm. Of course, our man from the best little whorehouse in Texas and Dog Day Afternoon. So good. Yeah. So sweet. I love that they took his character. And yes, it gets a little tense at the end. But like, he's just so sweet and not the like creepy guy. Mm-hmm. Just like. There's something amazing about you, and I'm in love. Yep. And the humor is not in him being creepy. It's in, oh, God, what am I going to do? Sidney Pollack playing George Fields. Of course, he is a pretty good actor himself, but also he is somewhere else in the movie. He is the voice of the director telling Michael Dorsey, we're looking for someone taller. We're looking for someone different. Mm. Gina Davis playing April. Yes, it was her film debut. It is that Gina Davis. Yep. 
Lynn Thigpen playing Joe from the set. It's the chief from the 1991 PBS game show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, yeah. She, that, her voice. It's just that voice, man. Ronald L. Schwery playing Phil Weintraub. He is actually one of the producers of this film. Oh, okay. He brought us Ordinary People, Scent of a Woman, Cops and Robertsons, and exec produced the television show Medium. Okay. As a middle-aged woman who says how much she loves Dorothy while they're dancing, it's Estelle Getty. <gasps> it is. Out of costume, out of Sophia Golden Girlness, it's Estelle Getty. It is. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Playing Linda, Christine Ebersole. She's, of course, a big deal from a lot of Broadway and film acting. Uh, she originated Edith Bouvier Beale in the Grey Gardens musical, and she was a one-time cast member of SNL during the Weird Year. Yeah. This is also her film debut. Wow. Bernie Pollock playing actor number one. This mm. is the brother of Sidney Pollock, who is also a costume designer and coordinator. Uh, he actually provided specific costume assistance to both Harrison Ford and Robert Redford in many of their movies. All right. Murray Shizgal played a party guest. He, of course, is one of our writers. Greg Gorman plays a photographer. He's actually a big deal Hollywood photographer who's done a ton of famous photo shoots. Mm -hmm. Lois DeBanzi playing an autograph hound. She was Eleanor Roosevelt in Annie. Oh, okay. Andy Warhol playing himself. Really? When Dorothy's doing the photo shoot, they have Andy Warhol. And, you know, sometimes he would get an Andy Warhol lookalike. No, they just got Andy Warhol. I did not realize that. At, like, I didn't realize it was Andy Warhol or that that was Andy Warhol. And Andy loved to make fun of himself like that. So oh, sure. He's that kind of guy. And finally, and this is not the last time we're going to be talking about him for this series. Because 1982 was the year that Tobin Bell fucking jigsaw himself made his film debuts wow okay he is a waiter in this movie okay <laughs> that's cool again tobin bell's gonna show up again oh okay all right let's talk about awards awards for oscars we talk about nominations not the actual awards diana yeah this film was nominated for 10 academy awards you know i'm not that surprised <laughs> like i i'm not it's a good movie i'm a little surprised but now now hit me with what got nominated that might surprise me first of all yeah best original song it might be you by stephen bishop you know what it's better than the easy chair song okay it's that, still it's, it's horrible but it's better wow. than that it's better than that david look this movie like the movie's going along and you're like, oh, this is nice stuff. And then the song starts and you're like, what the fuck am I watching? Mm -hmm. Like Sidney Pollock's doing a decent like montage sequence here or there sure. just to progress the story. And this song kicks in and I'm like, this is the dumbest fucking shit I have ever heard in my life. Yeah. Go to the go. Yeah. No. I'm like, what, what happened? <laughs> It's worse than some of the blood sport montages. And that's saying something. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, Stephen Bishop's other claim to fame was he also sang the song Animal House. No, oh, okay. So that happened. Let's talk about the other nominations. Mm -hmm. Best editing. Okay. Best sound. Eh, okay, whatever. Uh, well, fine. That's weird. Best cinematography. Okay. 
Maybe. I don't like, think I, so. I don't know. Best original screenplay. Right? Again. That's a stretch. It's, it's a stretch. A little bit. Here's where we kind of get into it. Best supporting actress, Jessica Lang. Nah. I know. I know. Best supporting actress, Terry Gar. Yes. Best actor, Dustin Hoffman. Of course. That's not surprising Duh. at all. Best director, Sidney Pollock. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Love that. And best, best picture. picture. Okay. Some of those I'm going, really? Yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> I don't hate the Jessica Lang pick as, as much, but I do understand. It's like, she's not really the most interesting part about this movie. Yeah. I think people were just excited that somebody who was playing the sort of quote unquote ditzy character actually brought a little bit of gravitas to it. Mm-hmm. And that was just surprising to people. I feel like that's more what's going on. But Terry Gar's the better performer in this movie. All right, well, let's wrap up with a few pieces of trivia. Okay. Apparently, the crew would only give bad news to Dustin Hoffman if he was dressed as Dorothy. Quote, he was much nicer as a woman, unquote. <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> Dorothy's glasses were initially opposed by the cinematographer. He was like, this is going to cause so many issues and reflections. Sure. No. However, when they did the screen test, the glasses feminized Dustin Hoffman a little bit and specifically softened his nose, which is one of his biggest prominent features. It is. And so the whole thing was when they saw him with the glasses on, they were like, looks like a completely different person. Yeah. Which is the thing. Which it's is the not, whole point. Yeah. The, the point is not necessarily to feminize him too much. It's just that Dorothy should be completely different than Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. So, because they were such an important part to keep Dorothy different from Michael, mm-hmm. Pollock decided that what they were going to do was spray a non-reflective coating on the glasses that was developed by the head of Panavision. Oh, awesome. <laughs> they actually used it for camera lenses, hmm. so it would allow better light transmission, but the idea worked perfectly. That's awesome. So there's no reflections in the glasses. That's cool. Though you can use the reflections to your advantage, as we saw in Knives Out. It's true. All of Dorothy's costumes were designed to hide Dustin Hoffman's incredibly long neck and Adam's apple. His Mm -hmm. neck was 16 inches long. Wow. It's not something you notice about Dustin Hoffman, but it's like, whoa. Yeah, but like if you like the Adam's apple, like for a lot of people is not like a very noticeable thing. But if you have such a long neck, it it, I could be really... (laughs) <laughs> really prominent at that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Dorothy's breasts were custom fit prosthetics purchased from an outlet that specialized in post mastectomy mm-hmm. products. Okay. And finally, that intro sequence you love so much about Michael Dorsey getting fired or quit. Yeah. Those were all taken from the various ways that Dustin Hoffman himself had been fired or quit over various productions he was in. That's amazing. <laughs> the Uncle Vanya one is my favorite. Yeah, that's pretty great. Because to be honest, I'm like, I'm with him. I'm like, yeah, what the fuck? I'm dying and I'm going to move? Yeah, that's the one where it's like, yeah, I I, I 100% agree with that. Well, that leads us to ratings. Mm-hmm. For every movie, we have a specific rating system. For this one, can we just go with Dorothy's wig? I was going to say her glasses. Her glasses, those are those are even better for Dorothy. It's yes. very true. I was going to say her glasses. Mm. How many pairs of Dorothy's glasses are we going to give this movie? Dinah, you have seen this one before, even if you don't recall it. Nah. Um, I, wa- I really want to say four. 
Wow. I know uh, because the acting's great. Even though I didn't love Jessica Lange, like she's still good in it. Like I don't love her. I would replace her, but like she's not bringing it down by any means. Dustin Hoffman's phenomenal in this film. He really is. The direction is also kick ass. The problem is just like that story shit at the end. Like that really bugs me and just missed opportunities with Terry Gar. So, but like the like watching the movie was still fun and like it wasn't like the cringeworthy moments were meant to be cringeworthy. So, yeah, you're I like you're right that this movie is rife to be remade today. I worry I worry that it wouldn't be done with the same level of care. Yeah, honestly, it's probably better just to leave it's this. It's probably better away. not to. I mean, they did do a musical. There's a Broadway musical of it. And I'm both disappointed, but also curious. Um, <laughs> it's Santino Fontana. So and I love him. So we'll see. But yeah, it's a four. It's a four for me. I'm going to go three and a half. Okay. Like, I agree on some parts. I think in really thinking about it, the script ultimately is only glued together because of the strength of the other people. Yeah. And like, as you start to then really dig into it, you, you know, looking back on it, you go, oh, this script's full of fucking holes. Yeah. And I start to go, oh, now I'm seeing it. Like, it took a Herculean effort yeah. to pull it all together and make it really work. However, that still makes it a really watchable movie. Yeah. And you're absolutely right that, you know, no, you probably shouldn't remake this now, but it tries. I mean, that, that's something we talk about a lot. You get a lot of props from me if you try. Yeah. If you try and you're thoughtful in how you're trying to tell a story, mm-hmm. even if you fail, even if there's moments where it doesn't work, if I can see the efforts made, it gives me a lot to know like, okay, you really thought through this as much as you possibly could. Yeah. It still doesn't all work together. But it that it still makes it really interesting and watchable, and the performances are undeniable. They yeah. just are. Three and a half for me. Okay. And that will lead us to the end of this movie. So that means we are on to our next film. What are we watching next? Hey, remember how we talked about that lady who played a soap opera star in this movie? Yeah. And she was in another movie before? Yeah. Well, we're going to watch that one. Oh, okay. We're watching Francis. Oh, all right. I know nothing about this movie, so okay. I don't know a whole lot about this movie other than I know it's about Hollywood legend Francis Farmer. Okay. He's a very troubled person. Okay. And I know that it's going to be wild. A little wild, a little intense. Well, all it's right. It's going to be one of those very troubled actress biopics. Ah, we know them well. <laughs> Drama. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.